friends. Welcome back to uh, Doorway to Discovery, the WPL podcast. As usual, my name is Erin and my pronouns are she, her. Um, and today we are talking a little bit about cataloging, which is a large library term for how we organize the books. So hopefully you guys find this interesting. Um, and I'm going to pass it along to our guest speaker to introduce herself. This is Melissa Adler. Melissa, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me to talk to you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I love talking about the organization of information and knowledge with people who actually, you know, are working with it and doing it and engaging with it all the time. So um, I am on the faculty of um, information and media studies at Western University. I mostly teach um, library science. So I teach um, research methods and I'm teaching information organization right now. Um, sometimes I teach in the undergrad program, which is the media studies program. Um, and yeah, and I, I'm just totally obsessed with um, classification and knowledge organization. So happy to talk more. <laughs> Looking forward to this. Yay. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm Ashlyn, she, they, and I um, invited Melissa because I also go to Western and I was so lucky to have her as my professor for research methods last term. And I'm really excited to uh, kind of pick your brain about your story of your research, but I will let everyone else introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Shelby. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm currently working on, on my MLIS um, at U of T. Um, and I'm super excited to meet you, Melissa, because um, I stumbled upon your research last semester um, during one of my classes with Jenna Hartel. Um, mm -hmm. And your research pops up so often this semester, and you're a little bit of a celebrity to me. So I'm super excited because I love all your work. Um, so I can't wait to talk to you about it because I'm obsessing a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. and ages. It's a thing. It is. Sorry. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. I'm Kylie. My pronouns are she, her, and I work at the Roslyn branch, organizing a lot, putting away a lot of books. So excited to learn some more about other ways of organizing and classifying library materials. Awesome. Amazing. Okay, so the first thing we kind of wanted to ask you about was how would you explain classification to a non-library person? Well, if we're talking, are we specifically talking about the classification of books? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's say that. Let's say that, just to keep it contained. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's say you are a patron and you are looking for a book and you've heard of the Dewey Decimal Classification, which I'm assuming you are organized by. Yeah. 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 They want to know what that means, right? Like, this is something we grew up with everybody sort of learns the basics of the Dewey Decimal Classification when they're a kid um, in public school and, and then public libraries and on and on. And I think we don't, we, we kind of take it for granted. It doesn't really mean much. It's just sort of directional. Um, so what I would say, if somebody wanted to know more about that, what that is, is that the Dewey Decimal Classification was created by uh, Melville Dewey um, a long time ago, like almost, yeah, like about 150 years ago. And basically he, he ordered the library um, according to subjects and he placed everything into 10 major groupings according to what we might call disciplines and then organized them with the intention of people being able to find 
things that are related to other things, right? Other books. No, no, that's, that's awesome. So I guess like another question for you with us being a public library and with you working in an academic setting and a lot of your research being on like the Library of Congress, how do you kind of like envision the, the differences between those classification systems? Mm. Yeah, so the, the, the public library setting is really meant for a broad public, public meaning like all the different people that might go to a library, right? So the difference between the public library and the uh, academic library is that academic libraries are really meant to serve scholars, right? Researchers, um, students, faculty, people who are doing that kind of academic research. Um, and so it's a much more sort of refined system in the academic context, um, much more so-called disciplined, um, organized around the uh, academic disciplines and then divided quite specifically within those disciplines so that researchers can get to the most relevant materials that are related to their topic. That's the idea anyway. In practice, it may or may not always work that way, but that's the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you bring up a lot of good points about like it being a specific audience that these are tailored to. And this is a discussion like we've had a couple times on here. Uh, so we were talking recently kind of of what would a library look like. We had we kind of had a side tangent which we're going to make into an episode <laughs> about like genrefying the shelves mm -hmm. and things like that. So yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on something like that, which is obviously like totally different from like using like Dewey. Well, I mean, like, of course, Dewey isn't used to classify fiction, but I don't know, like we we kind of had this discussion and Aaron, you had a lot of really like interesting takes. Thanks. <laughs> no, they were great. Yeah. You're going to hear them. So what are you thinking about? Oh, geez. Well, by, by small tangent actually means like a 15 minute rant. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, I think I'm trying to remember, I think one of the things personally, anyway, I can't speak for other people, but I know when I walk into public libraries, cause I think they're probably the most used with the largest members of the population. Mm -hmm. um, but genrefying things can get kind of frustrating. In some ways, I've noticed things are like misgenred. Like I would find like a fantasy book in like the horror section. Um, and it's just sometimes I feel like I personally think it's a little bit too open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, where uh, and other things like I know a lot of us, there's one book in particular that I, I think three of us read um that won an award for like yeah Shelby's laughing because we hate this <laughs> um, it won an award for like best romance but we all read it and we were like there like this isn't a romance novel like it's a fantasy novel so it just feels like other things can get left behind or you know like slip through the cracks when mm -hmm. you try to genrefy things like too much um and I'll leave it at that because I could go on for an hour <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that's the that's my, that's I think where my obsession comes in. Um, so if I may, I think we might as well just sort of go there um, because I think that that's always the trick with classification. It's always designed by humans, right? It's always designed by people. So what somebody imagines something is about or what genre it fits into or who its reader will be is always so, um, various right so I mean I think even with the with the Library of Congress um, or the Dewey context 
if you gave a book to five different catalogers, they'd probably all have different ideas about, especially if it's fiction, about what that work is about and where it belongs and what it's related to. And, and that speaks to, you know, we all have our own identifications with, with materials. And something like chemistry might be a little bit easier to say, okay, this is definitely about this. Yeah. But, um, and that's sort of partly why um, library classifications are tricky because the things that are, uh, that tend to be in fiction or the humanities or things that are open to interpretation are always going to be open to all kinds of different possibilities that way. And I think that that's, I mean, that's the other thing I meant to say about the Library of Congress too, because initially the Library of Congress was, all, it was entirely meant to serve the US Congress. So I find it so interesting that the Library of Congress really sets the standards by which many libraries around the world organize their materials. Cause we haven't even talked about subject headings and, um, and perhaps, <laughs> your, yeah, perhaps your listeners are curious to, to know what those are as well. Um, but those are just, you know, those are the terms that are um, how we, the, the terms we search by in the catalog. So it's not necessarily yeah. about location, it's the search terms and those are authorized quite literally. Those are what they're called, the authority, the authority headings authorized by the Library of Congress. And Canada has its own headings as well, um, but they end up sort of being merged with Library of Congress effectively. So. Yeah, you have these large government bodies sort of authorizing the terms by which we find materials in the catalog. And, um, and they are very specific and um, very often strange for yeah. some people mm. to encounter. <laughs> but, but I think it's important to differentiate because those are two different types of classification and they're both at work. And the Library of Congress subject headings are very widespread, like they, are used in catalogs all over the world, sometimes in translation and sometimes in English. Um, and so you, you find that there's some real interesting, um, you know, Americanization of, the, of, of knowledge and information around the world through these standards. And then the Library of Congress itself, the, the, the shelf classification um, is used in a lot of research libraries around the world too. And then Dewey too. So it's, it's really interesting that I think that that sort of lens is projected into libraries all over the place. Yeah, yeah. that's such a said, good point. Do you think you go into a more description? I know you deal a lot with the subject headings in the LLC and recently, this is something that Ashley and I both talk a lot about is your work with queer lit um, against some of the ways that they were classified. Um, I know I recently was learning about, um, I think it was Berkeley, they had a bunch of students um, that were undocumented and they kind of formed a group um, because they had recently been working in the library system and were learning how to catalog and they came across the term um, illegal alien. And so that was the term that was searched up. Um, if you wanted to find anything on people who are undocumented, it was under illegal alien, therefore, completely blocking off access to anybody who was looking up at the term undocumented instead of the way that they had classified it. So I wonder if maybe you can go into that because I'm super excited to hear what you have to say about what happened <laughs> with the Library of Congress and their terms they have used. Yeah, so that's a really great example. And actually I think it's Dartmouth that is okay. the um, university that this happened at. And it was it was really interesting um, problem 
And there's also, there is a documentary um, and I think it's accessible. I think it's open access indefinitely. It's called Change the Subject. So if you wanna know about okay. that, it's, it's, a, it's really good and really useful. Um, but in terms of thinking about that sort of, um, there's a way in which there's sort of like a, I mean, it's a cultural imperialism kind of question, right? The way that, that, the, that the Library of Congress is exported around the world. And that's one of the ways that I look at it. But yeah, you're right. So there was this um, illegal aliens was the heading and it was students that, that brought this up and worked with librarians um, because the Library of Congress does have a, um, a program called the Subject Authority um, Cooperative. Um, and you can, SACO is what they call it. Um, and you can, if you're a member library, if you're a member of this cooperative, um, you can propose new headings or you can propose changes to existing headings and you, you submit you know, supporting documentation and so on and, and um, make a case for why this heading is needed. Um, and so the Library of Congress does um, solicit these kinds of requests from, from librarians, experts in the fields and so on. And then they put it to a committee and then they decide what to do with that, whether they should authorize it or not. Um, and in this case, it came down to a question of um, the, the, the fact that the Library of Congress is indeed an American um, federal government institution and Congress actually did get involved and they found out that this was happening and um, they tried, Republicans actually tried to put forth a, a bill um, to sort of outlaw the possibility of this changing. And, and ultimately the librarians of Congress, um, as I understand it, um, had to stay with the, the heading as it, I, th I believe it still is illegal aliens because it's got to adhere to um, formal US government language. There's this interesting, it really shows that the Library of Congress is indeed the Library of Congress, that it's connected to the US government. Um, and so I, before this even happened, um, I happened to be at a conference in Denmark and I, I knew about this heading. I knew it was, I already knew it was problematic um, aside from this. And I asked my um, Danish colleagues what they thought of this heading because it's in their catalog. <laughs> and um, they were just kind of dumbfounded. They didn't know what this term meant, right? It didn't have any relevance. And they were just like, we would never ever use that terminology, but yet that is the terminology that's in this, their, their catalog because they use this um, US system. So it's interesting in so many different ways. So I would say, yeah, if you're interested, definitely watch Change the Subject. That's the documentary. Um, and you'll get more of the sort of ins and outs of the details of, of how that all um, took place. Um, and then, yeah, for me, I just find it, I find that connection with the US government so interesting and fraught. Definitely, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, I feel like I kind of like, I'm obsessed with like the notion of like neutrality in the library. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
like it just doesn't really exist so I think it's really really wild that like that the authority is obviously so subjective and I didn't really realize how widespread it was that like like your Danish colleagues you know like in the I guess in the Netherlands like that it would affect them that's just like I don't know that's crazy to me Mm -hmm. for it to be a term that they don't understand either so Mm -hmm. not only is it something that it shouldn't be used but when they actually went to go look at it they're like we don't even know what that term means so for somebody to then try and look up material that is under that heading it wouldn't have been found at all correct so that's the thing to me that that is so insane about classification is the fact that just that one tiny misstep can erase so much information from people being able to access it um and I just I couldn't imagine I didn't know that they actually didn't end up changing it we watched part of the documentary in my class and I was amazed first of all that it was even in the the catalog Um, but then it reminds me my my grandparents live in the states and they are considered uh, legal aliens Mm -hmm. Um, and if the terminology in all of the government's documents is that way then it makes sense that they wouldn't be allowed to change it without then changing all of the documents from illegal aliens to undocumented but I think because it's American like that's such a bigger issue is that I mean all of our media comes from America a good chunk of it right and now even our our data around classification of our materials is also being controlled by an American government. Mm-hmm. I mean it really speaks to sort of these global standards and globalization and how that works. And I, one of the reasons that I find library classification so fascinating is that we can actually see it, right? So we have access to all these classifications. They're public, they're publicized. The Library of Congress is a public institution. So I love that. And it's, um, it, it, allow, it allows us to see what's happening. And it, there is a certain degree of transparency there that I think is really good. We can interrogate it. Um, and that's, that's in sharp, contrast to things like algorithms, right? So many people are talking about the ways that algorithms um, have very similar problems. Um, And a lot of those problems sort of reside at the level of classification, but we can't see how things are ordered in those, right? They're all hidden in in a black box kind of situation. So um, partly because they're proprietary, partly because of the the great technical nature of these things, um, it's, it's really, um, the opposite of transparent, but we can kind of see some of those, the inner workings of libraries and library classifications. And we can actually, what I like about them is we can, I, le- I love to use library classifications as historical documents. We can really learn a lot about ourselves as, um, as we relate to these ideas and these categories and how these categories sort of literally inform um, culture. So I think there's a lot to um, be said for the usefulness of these in terms of being um, historical tools and entries into some of these really complicated questions about about how we categorize people and how governments see people differently than people might see themselves, right? So, and this is really interesting when we come to and fraught um, when we come to indigenous classifications and so on. So um, sort of what needs to be done when we think about decolonizing or indigenizing the catalog, there's so many interesting and good projects that are um, challenging these government ideas about 
who people are and what communities are and so on. Yeah, definitely. I've like been, I got lucky and I got into the course at Western. It's like the pilot course of indigenizing and decolonizing LIS. And it's been amazing because, oh, and listeners, LIS is just a library and information science. Mm -hmm. But um, so like in the course, we've actually spent a lot of time talking about uh, like indigenizing the catalog. And we've had so many guests come on and they have, it's really cool. They have a bunch of living documents, but one of the things we looked at was kind of a spreadsheet they had of like proposed, I guess, uh, like subject headings, like that would be appropriate for different indigenous communities. And it has mm -hmm. like the appropriate spelling and like they're just talking about how how important it is to like build those relationships with the community. But anyways, before I go into a tangent about that away from classification, it's it's really neat. And one of the things they were talking about is there's a lot of things going on that you might not think are going on, but they pretty much were saying, like all of our guests were saying, if there's a topic, there's like, you just know there's like a project going on where like indigenous librarians are working at it. And it's really, really been cool to see during that class. But I guess I have another question for you. So you said that one of the cool things about, uh, you know, like classification schemes are how they're pretty transparent. But I'm wondering how your experience was when you kind of dove into, uh, was it called the Delta Collection? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that wasn't necessarily as like easy to access, was it? No, for sure. And in fact, that I mean, so, OK, so the so the Delta collection, um, I'm going to try to give this a sort of uh, in a nutshell kind of description. <laughs> the Delta collection was um, a collection of primarily of obscenity at the Library of Congress um, and that um, collection really grew in significance during the McCarthy era um, when really the, there was sort of a great fear of communism and uh, so-called sexual perversion um, and a real um, persecution and, um, and sort of hunting of um, people that people uh, regarded as being so-called sexual perverts. And the at the time, so in the 50s and 60s primarily, um, this meant that in federal institutions, there was a, a great um, purge of um, homosexuals from the workforce in federal agencies. And I know that this happened in Canada too, and I know a little bit less about that, but Kate Johnson, who um, is a retired faculty member here at FIMS has done a bunch of research on this. Um, but this was um, a major um, sort of effort to sort of question and interrogate people who were so suspected of, and I'm using language of the time, of course, I'm not <laughs> subscribing to, um, these associations or even these terminologies exactly. So there were people at the Library of Congress who were um, questioned for being gay for their sexual orientation and, and, and relationships and so on. Um, and this is happening at the same time that um, there's increased censorship of, um, of materials going through the mail, of materials going through the customs department and so on. Um, or a customs bureau. Um, and, and so the Library of Congress 
became this place where materials that were seized by the Customs Bureau or by the FBI or by the Postal Service um, ended up. And then librarians had to determine what to do with these materials. And it, they really went back and forth um, on, on what the best thing to do was. Some, some of these were stored in um, this federal agent's collection so that they could be consulted by other federal agents. And um, they would collect multiple copies of them. Then they realized they had far too many copies of them. But these were things like Ulysses and Lolita. And they were also things that were you know, considered dangerous if they got into the wrong hands. So they could even be things like guides to family planning or something like this. If they had um, any kind of sort of expl sexually explicit material in them or um, illustrations or things like this. Um, so the Delta collection became this um, repository for um, specifically the, the obscene materials. There were also communist materials and things like this, but the obscene materials went into the Delta collection. It was, it's interesting because it was, it was managed by a person called the keeper of the collections. And um, he was also basically responsible for um, ensuring the, the security and safety of, of all the collections. So, you know, it was his job to make sure the Declaration of Independence um, was safe. And so in wartime, especially, this was a really important task. So um, he had all kinds of different roles that were really about making sure that the library materials were secure. Um, and among his tasks was the Delta Collection, and he did not enjoy this part of his job. Um, and so the archive about the Delta Collection is really interesting. So the collection itself was was for the most part hidden away. There wasn't a, the, the public didn't have access to the catalog. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't completely off limits. So if you knew about it and you knew what you wanted, you could go and you could con consult the librarian and they would, they would be able to find you what you needed, but it was very much like sort of an appointment based or like a, you know, like a specific, um, you had to consult with their librarian. So, so how would you have known about it back then? Would it have been hard to find out about? I don't know how you would have known about it. I don't know yeah. how that was. So it was sort of secret, like it was sort of, okay. um, but it was consulted by members of Congress. Um, there were there were times when um, people consulted the collection to get sort of supporting information in a in a in a law case or something like this. And so the so it was effectively a, a, a relatively secret collection. These were materials that they didn't want in the hands of the public. And so I, I, the way that I see this is that there was a way in which it was meant to protect the materials from being destroyed because some of them were actually quite valuable. They might've had really beautiful plates or, or something like this. So there was a, a way in which they were, the materials themselves were protected from users. And then also users like the public was protected from these dangerous materials. Mm -hmm. And I also think that there's a way in which the library itself was sort of protecting itself. It didn't want to be known for having these kinds of materials. Um, so they, they kept them sort of secret. Mm -hmm. It's super interesting. And then a lot of materials um, were destroyed um, in this process of seizing them from customs and, and so on. And then they would decide, the librarian 
the librarians would have to decide what to keep and what to destroy and how to, how they'd be destroyed. Um, that's, oh my gosh, like that's just so interesting. So when, like when things would be destroyed, I don't know, maybe this is just like a question that a listener might be asking or wondering, like including myself, did they ever burn the books? Yeah, so they, I mean, they were, they were incinerated. They were placed in burn bags. That's what they were called. And incinerated. Wow. Mm-hmm. I know wow. it doesn't make any sense. That's yeah. wild. I love that. Yeah. And so that history is interesting. It was really interesting to do that history because I went looking for materials about sexual perversion and sort of the history of how things got categorized under this, um, under this heading, basically. And I wanted to, I wanted to see. I went to the Library of Congress and went to their um, rare books to see these older books that got classified as such and I kind of just wanted to see you know what what that what they imagined books about perversion were you know going back to um around 1900 to the present and when I was there um I had some really interesting conversations and in fact ahead of my visit the archivist in the manuscripts division said, you might be interested in, in this collection of papers, which was the papers of the keeper of the collections. And, and indeed, it seems that nobody's really done research on this. And so I kind of, I went around and I was like, do you, do you know anything about this? Do you know anything? I was asking everybody I could about this at the Library of Congress, people that you know are known researchers. And nobody really done anything about this. And it, the collection wasn't listed in, you know, any kinds of, it wasn't featured in um, list of collections or things like this. So there really wasn't a, people didn't really know much about it at all. They might've known that it existed, but they didn't know what it was about or how it was managed or what it, what it contained. Um, so yeah, it was really an interesting thing to, to sort of unearth that and to, and mm-hmm. so the archives are really interesting because the keeper of the collection kept a diary. So there's really interesting diary entries. And then there's a lot of memoranda floating around and everybody's sort of not wanting to take responsibility for this mm-hmm. and not wanting to claim, nobody wanted to really claim that they knew what to do with these materials either. Really yeah. interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like a dark hidden history. That's, it's really, really cool that you did that. So I'm wondering like when you were kind of looking at what things were like classified as perverse, like like what did that look like? Maybe specifically in the context of like, like queerness, like I'm guessing it was kind of like pathologized. Yeah, so originally, so I was looking at um, subject heading. So back to that whole subject heading versus shelf classification. I was looking at the things um, that were classified as being about sexual perversion. And the way that I entered into that sort of, the way, the reason I got into that was because I was looking as a graduate student, trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my dissertation. I was looking at the UW-Madison catalog and I was looking for materials on bisexuality and um, history, mainly. That's what I was thinking I wanted to do. And I um, found this record for this book written by um, Wilhelm Steckel, um, who was a colleague of Freud's. And um, he had a book called, 
um, in, in translation, it was, you know, bisexuality, the homosexual neurosis or something like this. This is how he titled it, right? This is like in the- this Oh dear. Ago. Yes, but this is how- Oh, oh dear. But, oh, dear. The, but the worst part about it, like, so that is what it is. That's mm -hmm. what he called it. And, or that's how it was translated. And, but the Library of Congress record the, or the, that, that was in the um, Madison catalog, the Library of Congress sub subject headings, I should say, said um, neuroses and paraphilias. And paraphilias was a word that I didn't know. And so I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. This, <laughs> what is that? And so I clicked on paraphilias and I saw that the library had hundreds of things that were cataloged using this term. And I was very confused. I was like, well, this must be a relic. Maybe something didn't get updated. What's going on here? And then, so I dug and dug and dug. And then I realized that the Library of Congress actually authorized this as a subject heading in 2007. Wow. And so I was so confused. Wow. Yeah. And it was meant to replace sexual deviations which had been authorized in the 1970s and sexual deviations had replaced sexual perversions. So wow. it's sort of kind of following, you know, other discourses in psychiatric discipline, but um, I found it really alarming and confusing in terms of access. If libraries, mm -hmm. you know, tend to privilege access above all else, and that is not always necessarily the, you know, speaking of indigeneity access and more is not always the best, but certainly paraphilias is not something that I think promotes access because nobody knows what that means. Not, exactly. not, not lay people, right? Yeah, and, and for so, the listener, could you describe uh, paraphilia? Yeah, I mean, it's the medical, it's a psychiatric term. It's basically used in the psychiatric community. It's in the diagnostic manual. Um, and it's the term that's used for what we might call sexual deviations or perversions or so on. So on. And we, that's super complicated, but um, it is that kind of, it's a medicalized term. Um, and so what falls under that, and it's, and so the reason that this book by uh, Wilhelm Steckel had this heading attached was because when it was originally cataloged back in the day, like maybe in the 30s, 1930s, it was given the heading sexual perversion. And then because of updating technologies, when that heading was updated, it became sexual deviations and then, um, and then sexual perversion. So it was just sort of done in a sort of global update um, process. And so it just still retains that terminology, but now in like a, it's a very kind of anachronistic because it wasn't a term that was in common usage. It's not in common usage now either, but it wasn't really a term then. So I was just kind of like, how does this all work? That's, that's how I came to that. I just wanted to figure out like, what does this mean to have all these materials? And, and so what that means is that, um, yeah, so homosexuality um, as a heading didn't get, didn't become a Library of Congress heading until the 1940s. So everything before that, if it was about what we would call queerness now, um, it would have fallen under that sexual perversion heading because there just wasn't another way to describe it. Um, right. And even today, we don't have a heading for queer. We have queer theory, but we don't have a heading for queer. Um, there, isn't a, there aren't really great headings for 
these identity categories. I could imagine um, so. Yeah, and so, and, and um, headings for um, like gay men, I think were authorized like in the late eighties. So. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is We're all just like, oh wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're all so disappointed. So yeah. disappointed. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's That's partly because it's a bureaucracy, but it's also, I mean, it's all it's largely the work of people like Sandy Berman and Barbara Giddings and the, these people who petitioned the Library of Congress mm -hmm. to say we need better headings. We need better, like these are outdated. Yeah. Um 100 yeah. And you wrote a book about this. Could you tell our listeners uh what your book's called and how they can find it? <laughs> The book is called Cruising the Library, per Perversities in the Organization of Knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all going to go read that. Yes. <laughs> a million percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to ask, though, because I don't know. So I was wondering about, because I was thinking when we were talking about subject headings, how a lot of, I guess, like mainstream readers have almost come up with their own concept of subject headings under the whole like tag format, yeah. which I know we use a lot on, on Goodreads. And I, I also thought it was important to mention like it's a nice little kind of overlap and also with our catalog system that we have at our library, um, the subject headings are called, also known as like tags or keywords. Mm -hmm. um, so you can type in that as like a keyword search and sort yeah. of pop it up. But I think it's nice that the general public has kind of like taken that responsibility and been like, listen, you're not doing it right. Um, <laughs> we're going to add our own spin onto it. So like, what's your take on, you know, Goodreads tags and essentially like if that could be amalgamated into like a professional library setting at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think in some places they are. Library Thing is the other um, sort of catalog your own books site. Uh, I know that libraries do import um, those into their catalogs. So, um, and the functionality varies from library to library and um, system to system, but, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm a I'm a big fan of that. I mean, it's not a perfect system either, but I do like the idea of people being able to um, define what these things are about for themselves, and to get to have a capacity to you know call things what they would call them. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's great. And I, it's, it's interesting because I think it tends to be the case that most of the people who are tagging things tend to be librarians. We can't turn it off. <laughs> no, <laughs> it just keeps going. It's ingrained. <laughs> I know for me personally, if I'm looking for something on Goodreads and like maybe the description or like the summary of the book isn't super clear. I immediately go over to the tags. And I'm like, okay, yes. what do other people think this is about? Yeah, <laughs> this isn't telling me enough, and it's it's well, helpful. It definitely is. Helpful. Well, For and sure. the best thing about those tags too is what I really like is so to circle back to the annoying book that got classified as romance, but we all know <laughs> wasn't a romance novel. Mm -hmm. um, you 
can see the the number of times people have tagged it as something too so you can see one gets like out tagged almost than another so like for in the instance of that book like fantasy would have like ten thousand, whereas romance will only have like you know 6500 kind of thing so you can kind of see what the majority is deciding that it's about too and essentially like make your make your case that way which I kind of like too because it's kind of like okay well you know phone a friend (laughs) yeah 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 I love that collective energy that's like um okay I've been trying to convert everyone to story (laughs) graph from Goodreads because Goodreads is owned by Amazon um but anyways okay so (laughs) the story graph is so cool because like pretty much like from how I have like understood the system the platform to work is that like every time you input like you review a book or whatever like you are the ones contributing to those tags so then after like when you go look for a books like there's no like it's this this or this it's just like the most popular tags for like the moods I just think that's so much better and then it's like it's more about the reader than about like the classifier especially for fiction I love that so you're saying like it tags on moods like if I I just want like does it tag it on tropes? Can we talk about that for a second? Oh I my saw gosh. a post that was like, if they had, <laughs> sorry, you should know we all are just like huge romance novel fans <laughs> and we're like suckers for good tropes. Yeah. There was like an enemies to lovers trope or like, <laughs> you know, I just stop in that section. That would be so, so cool so much cooler to like be able to look based on the trope that's being used in the book because we talk about this a lot like that we are all very much so involved in the romance world I we read a lot of romance so there's just so many like I just what if I do just want enemies to lovers or like a convenient marriage like you know yes. marriage convenience like that's such uh, a cool way a of cataloging of convenience oh, the best, the best. Yeah. <laughs> okay. that's super interesting yeah there's just I, I think when we talk about it, because we're huge nerds and we talk about this outside of the podcast as well, just in general, <laughs> um, just so much that we could do with classification systems outside of like governing bodies and the idea of the public kind of like taking back that um, idea or what they want or, you know, what they need or what they're looking for we kind of like that idea of it coming from us and not from them. Yes. And that notion of like it being sort of a social cataloging, that means you're in conversation with each other and you're, yeah. Yeah. And I think it appeals more to the general population as well. To be honest, you've got people, especially when we branch out from books and we start talking about like DVDs and Mm -hmm. music and like all of that, all of those different things that we have at the library available to our patrons as well. Something that's incredibly user-friendly because, you know, Dewey is fine on paper, but our patrons look at that and they go, I don't, I can't, I can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's not very accessible. So this, I don't know, just like imagining this is really cool to think about, you know. Yeah, I always thought it would be fascinating to like take the picture book section and divide it not by like alphabetical author names, but like books about dogs and books about, I don't know, school and books about moving like vehicles and something like that. I mean, little kids aren't gonna be like oh yes I think today I'd like a book by this author (laughs) it's not as I mean you know they have usually an adult with them but (laughs) 
Yeah. So it's um, user friendly for, for what they're looking for. But if a child yeah. independently can find what they're looking for in our stacks, it's a lot more, it's better for them, right? Because they're also learning. They're learning how to use, a, use the library in a different mm-hmm. way to look for symbols and vis- like visuals, not mm-hmm. just for the last name of the author. Because when a, a child goes in, they're, they're not looking for, I'm going to read Robert Munch today. They're mm-hmm. like, I want to yeah. read a book about a big They're cookie. tired of him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> too much like, fun. not another one of his. <laughs> but. Yeah. And even for staff, too, because, like, when I'm looking in the stacks and whatever, it's going to be, like, a bike month story time. It's so hard. Like, you, like, yeah. sometimes I find myself just pulling, like, every single cover because, like, you go through the system and, like, we know that once kids put a book back in the shelf there's no finding it ever again so no it would be great for us like I'm saying this in a selfish way like I don't know (laughs) I'd be I'd be very curious to see what that looked like Kylie I feel like Kylie you immediately thought of this because you're doing bundles and you're tired of searching yeah we do we do a lot of book bundles and there's a lot of like I'd like a book about things that move things that go where do I find those dinosaurs (laughs) yeah just reading the title of every book on the shelf until I find something that's like truck Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, and that, and kids classification is even harder too. And I know because like, so I work in the children's department at the main branch of the library and and I primarily do children's programming. And there's a lot of books recently that I've noticed that are classified as nonfiction, which I think we all know don't circulate as well as fiction do just for various different reasons, Um, but that are written like fiction. So for instance, there's this amazing book about, um, Stonewall and you know the 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 protests that happened and you know it being this huge like icon in the LGBTQ community and it's classified as nonfiction, um, but the book is written like a story. So I feel like there are a lot of a lot of stories now that kind of overlap where they're teaching children about like historical things, but it's written and and illustrated very much like a children's book, but it's not going to circulate because it's over you know. Uh, in a different section so and those are hard too and I know like the poetry section is like a whole other mess (laughs) but it's just it's especially with children's fiction it's it's hard it's I feel like that's the biggest one to tap I had some um picture but well actually not picture books it was um kids nonfiction come in that I thought were picture books and I went and put them on the picture book cart and then when I was putting them away like oh these these aren't picture books I like didn't even look at the label because I just saw the cover and was like oh yeah picture book and um yeah it was fully going into the nonfiction section so yeah there are a lot of those coming in I guess it's perhaps a new trend that there's like a lot of which is great I mean like you know for the kids to be able to read something like there's a really great book again like on Harvey Milk and like his story um but told as a children's story but also it's classified as nonfiction because it's technically Mm. and that's that's the huge thing I think in classification is technicalities Um, yeah because it is technically nonfiction, but you know, I think you're alienating a huge portion of the population by classifying it that way, especially in a public library. So I think so. Interesting. It is interesting considering that we have a picture book section, like it's not actually called fiction, it's called picture books. Yeah. Realistically speaking, like if you're going to have picture books, those should be in the picture book section, but because they're they're nonfiction they end up over there but there, there are so many great books like look at shark lady shark yeah. lady when I first read that I was like this <laughs> is a love shark lady it's so and good then you're like oh no this is a real lady and it's yeah. shelved in nonfiction but it reads just like a picture book and that's 
that's obviously a choice that the library system has made not to have, you know, in um, large print, for instance, large print, you have all of large print, but then you also have large print nonfiction. Yeah. Like, it's interesting to just maybe move the picture books from nonfiction into picture books nonfiction, right? Because then we can just take everything that's picture oh, book so that's and it's still nonfiction, yeah, but it's cataloged cool. in the picture book section. So that's, that's actually interesting. That's very interesting. That's a good idea. That's a project for you, Shelby. <laughs> well, you know, Shelby, no. if you want to work on that, call me because I've actually I, I talked to my boss about that because um so we've talked about this on the podcast before um we're all in charge of something called weeding which is a very fancy word for taking books off the shelves that are dirty or outdated and we don't need them anymore um to make room for new ones so mm-hmm. when I was weeding the um the, the 811s the poetry there's so much so you've got your you know your alligator pies that everybody knows but, you know, again, they don't move because they're in a section that doesn't get browsed. But actually brought it up with my boss. I was like, this would be a really easy to switch over. We'll just change it to a JP, which is the way that we classify our picture books um, with the last name of the author and just pop it, you know, in the picture book section. Like, it's very simple. So we actually talked about, you know, at one point doing that. And I think there are a lot of books, you know, like Shark Lady um yeah, I can have like a special little disclaimer like hey based on a true story or something in the catalog but put it somewhere where the kids are going to find it yeah I love this idea can we please do this because this yeah. is so much easier <laughs> and more accessible because yeah. all of these stories that are so easy to teach your kids if they're already written in that language like they should be accessible and knowledgeable and even us the librarians who see the books come in you know especially at the branches we deal with circulation and right now because we don't have pages we're also you know putting the books away like right now we're very physical with the material but on a typical basis we don't really get to see as much as we'd like to like right now we get to like sit there and peruse through the books when they come in but usually you're running at such a high speed that you don't get to so That's the one positive thing about our, our pandemic and our lockdown is that we get to spend the time with the material and try and really figure out a way to make it more accessible. And I love this idea so much. <laughs> Send me an email. <laughs> you I can will. jump on board. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, I think it's just, so what you're doing, what's happening here is like, we're sort of like re- realizing like we're all trained into doing this, like to running a library and organizing it a particular way because that's the way it's always been done and it's I think it's really hard for people to sort of even think to question that like we just do this because this is how we do it and then we train more and more people in it and we go to library school and this is how it's done and like it's just that idea is reinforced and reinforced and then all it takes is saying like wait does it have to be <laughs> yeah and then, yeah why so this conversation has to- totally turned it like now the now your listeners are getting sort of an insight it's like a staff meeting <laughs> yeah. 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 I love it. welcome to our behind the scenes yeah. <laughs> it works yeah. perfectly for this episode honestly yeah. because yeah this, this episode is really a behind the scenes episode where we kind of get to talk with our listeners about what goes on in the library from people who who work it who are from a generation that is coming into the library system. Uh, We're seeing a huge turnover, especially in our library system where Mm. a lot of things are changing and it's because Mm. new people are coming into the system and finally asking why, like, why do we keep doing this? Do we need to keep doing this? Is there a better way to do it? And this library system has been in my life since the minute I was born. Like you can see that my library card was created like in 1996 (laughs) and to see it create, like to change so much, even within the last like 
year, like literally a year ago in March, we were locked down and the amount that we have been able to do to be able to sit down and really like interact with our material and change the way we think about it. It's been so amazing to be able to get to do that. And it's so amazing to watch like something like this, where this idea was just kind of like born in this speech of us just kind of talking like this is, this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And we love to talk about it. And we'll always talk about it, even if we're not working. It's true. We have, we have a group chat. It's fine. (laughs) I love it too. I could talk about it all the time too. Yeah. But, and what Shelby built on too, is that not only are we coming from sort of like the the turnover, but we're also coming from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So both Ashlyn and Shelby are doing their masters of library science, but like I did my library tech. Mm -hmm. um, So I did my diploma. So it's, it's a nice comparison of, you know, what you learn at the college level versus what you're learning at the university level. We all have like different undergrads under our belts as well, which brings different ideas forward and not only that is like we have people above us that are really open to change too so I know like my boss is incredible like I can go to her and be like hey we should move poetry and she's like yeah I'd love to hear about it so that's nice too that we're given that freedom to sort of ask questions and not just sort of been be shot down too at the very least so yeah there's that (laughs) yeah no that makes all the difference to be able to have that and I mean, yeah, and it's so great that you're having these conversations very openly and sort of really hoping that the public gives you feedback and that, you know, like ideally you would actually be saying, well, what do you all want? Like, wouldn't it be amazing to have, just have these books spread out and see what the kids do or ask them to sort them? Yeah. It'd be so that would be, that be really such a, amazing to watch. To just I like get some that. kids in yeah. to be like, where do you think they should go? That's amazing. We should do a program <laughs> when the library reopens. I'm just like, I'm bringing that to oh the RA gosh. team. <laughs> do it. Recount no, so cool. I love that. <laughs> no, that's amazing. This has been like such a good conversation. Um, I don't want to keep you on forever, Melissa, because we honestly sometimes we do talk for hours, pass around what we're currently reading or what we're reading next okay all right do you want to go what are for you it? reading melissa i'm reading a lot of things at the moment um june bat by john elizabeth john elizabeth stinsey it's a book of poetry and um i've just started it but it's beautiful and it's by this non-binary writer who is canadian um and um, I just read their Vanishing Monuments, which is a novel, which I thought was really, really beautiful, partly because it's really talking about, um, it's talking about this non-binary person who had left home years ago um, and then comes back when their mother um, has very advanced dementia. And it's really complicated, this relationship um, and, uh, this person goes, goes back to their, their house in Winnipeg, their childhood home. And it's just full of um, really interesting references to memory. And, um, and it's so, it's kind of mind bendy. And I think it's really kind of getting at sort of a very, it, there's a very queer uh, timelessness, strangeness to the narration that is, um, it's intentional because it's playing with memory and and loss and all these really big themes in a way that's quite compelling, I find. So I just started the volume of poetry, but 
the description is that they were written when the person was in a state of sort of despair and isolation. And so they're, they're working through some really big things. So it's beautiful and Canadian and queer. So it goes with it. I would recommend both of those. So, so amazing. Our, our queer lit episode last, the last one we just did was our queer lit episode. And that would have been so cool to like have read that. That sounds so cool. I'll definitely put yeah. it on our list. Cool. Yeah. It is cool. And I, it's, it's interesting. And it's, um, for us who are sort of in, I consider libraries and archives, you know, like we're doing memory work in a certain way. So these, I think, I really enjoy novels in particular that play with memory. Cause there's, to me, the, the novel Vanishing Monuments is a book about archives in a certain way. Yeah. There's an, and toward the end, there's an explicit, like there is a visit to an archive, but I feel like the entire thing is kind of about that. So it's really interesting. Sounds anyway. so good. Oh. Yeah. Just add it to the never ending list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, Erin, what did you read? Or, or what are you reading next? Oh, well, I've been on a bit of a bender, a reading bender, I should specify. Um, <laughs> I've just, do you, do you guys ever just get in that mood where you just read a book a day because you can't help yourself? Yeah. I yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, but the next on my list, hopefully, Shelby and Kylie, you're going to be really happy um, with this is Six of Crows. Yes, I gave it a chance a few years ago and I couldn't get into it, but I think um, I'm in the right headspace for it now. I, from what I understand and from what I remember from the first like 75 pages, it's just sort of like um, Ocean's Eleven meets fantasy a little bit. Yes. Um, with this whole concept of like a found family and just like super cool, you know, rocking characters. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try it again. And because the TV show is coming out in April, and I excellent have to read it. Have to read it. Yeah. So I'm ladies, so it's here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, yeah. I'll hold mine up next. I'm I was also, gonna say we should have coordinated. <laughs> I'm also next going to be reading Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. Um, yeah, it's basically Ocean's Eleven meets fantasy. It's a heist. They, it's a bunch of teenagers who have been tasked with breaking into like this impenetrable enemy fortress um, for like a million of their version of dollars. Um, and everyone's basically, oh, you can't do it. And they're like, nah, we probably can. And they're, uh, it, they're a feisty group and they're just, it's a really good group of characters they're amazing found family great trope mm. yes I do love a family recommend. <laughs> mm. um, I'll go next because I have six of crows but it's not one that I'm currently reading um I did just start this one I'm reading fable by Adrienne oh. Young Ooh. oh I've heard such good things I've heard so many good things every time I'm on Instagram looking yep. at the book reels it always pops up I've only gotten to like chapter two or three but it has this amazing ability to just kind of suck you into the story. And I think it has to do with pirates, honestly, like so Ooh. far. Okay. Cause I have, I, I, love a, read, I love a ship. I didn't read what the book was about because I was like, you know what? I just want to be surprised. Do you ever just want to be really surprised yes. by the book you're reading? Wow. Always. So I have no idea what the book truly is about, but it opens with her fully sprinting down a hill towards the water and the ship is taking off and she like jumps from something onto the ship um, and then spends the day diving, um, collecting this gemstone. 
that almost like sings to her. So I'm not really sure if something's going to happen there, but I immediately was just pulled into the story and her talking about taking breaths. Like she does this whole um, like paragraph on how she prepares her lungs to deep dive into the ocean. And just because it's fun to do what they're doing in books, I was sitting there like trying to breathe like her. Um, It really (laughs) calmed me down too. We also just finished a book from a series that uh, Erin, Kylie and I all read um, called A Court of Silver Flames, which we won't go to get into, but she also does a lot of breathing exercises to kind of calm her mind, but full on mindfulness. Yes. 100% 100% mindfulness and I, like, um, I, did the seminar. <laughs> I really love it so far I love the imagery of the water her swimming in it I absolutely adore diving and water and it's kind of different we've I've been reading a lot of um fey fantasies so if it's a pirate one I am here for a pirate story love a good be, pirate story, spoiler so. alert but I think I saw because I've been seeing it all over my like book Instagram bookstagram mm-hmm. bookstagram um I feel like it might be a mermaid book too <gasps> Okay, I could um, be wrong. I'm obsessed I with mermaids. I know. I could <laughs> be wrong though. So I apologize in advance if I got you excited. But I feel like I heard something about me. mermaids. <laughs> I will actually because she so kind of looks like Ariel, like with the she, red hair. With the water. The water. We'll see. You'll have to let me know. <laughs> okay, now I have to read it. I have so much work to do, Erin. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> we get very excited about books. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't be sorry. <laughs> Ashlyn, what are you reading? Okay, I'm currently reading uh, Juliet Takes a Breath by Gabby oh, Rivera. Goodness. Oh my gosh, yes. So Kate, uh, one of our other co-hosts isn't here today. She recommended it to me. Um, I'm like halfway through. It's really, really good. It's so interesting. It kind of goes into like feminism and how kind of mainstream feminism intersects with like queer feminisms and like uh, like feminists of color and just like intersectionality but it's wild because the main character uh, her name's Julia and she lives in like she spent her whole life like in the Bronx and she's Puerto Rican and she moves to Portland Oregon which is like like Twilight? super <laughs> what do you mean that's Forks Washington yeah, uh, they go to Portland. Portland they do stop dress shopping (laughs) you're right you're right yeah so they go to Portland um and like Portland is like a super like hippie place but like kind of like like saturated in like whiteness and white feminism so it's really really like interesting to read this book and like hear her navigate and like she idolizes like this like one author who's like white like white feminist and both um Mm. both like meanings of the term it's wild also Roxanne Gay like reviewed it very strongly and you know if Roxanne Gay says something good something is good it's going to be fantastic so yeah now I need to like finish this but yeah that's what's next for me uh so thank you again to Melissa thank you so much for hanging out and talking classification with us um listeners as usual if you have any questions um send us a message and you know we're on YouTube we're on Instagram we're on Facebook uh and don't forget our library bundles I know Kylie and I mentioned that earlier um so if you want a bundle of books for adults or kids you can find that on our website and we also do discover reads so if you just want a librarian to put together a uh, personalized list of things you should read you can reach out to us for one of those as well um, and we will see you all in a couple of weeks bye bye, bye. bye. <laughs>